We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing Taipei Mayor Ke Wen-je filing a lawsuit against allegations that he was involved in live organ harvesting in China. TSMC founder Morris Jung will be representing Taiwan at APEC. Two Chinese nationals are seeking political asylum here in Taiwan. There was an orgy at a Taipei hotel and convenience stores are now sipping up and guzzling up the profits from the sales of fresh coffee. But we'll begin with the Central Election Commission this week confirming that a referendum proposed by the KMT asking voters if they support the phasing out of thermal power plants will be held alongside November's local elections. But due to the large number of forged signatures found on the petition and the signatures of reportedly dead people the case is being reported to prosecutors and criminal charges could be brought. Now, the referendum was proposed by KMT lawmaker Lu Xiaoyan, who just happens to be running as the party's candidate in the Taijong mayoral election. And her team collected and delivered 497,193 public endorsements for the referendum proposal. However, the Election Commission says that subsequent checks with household registration offices found that only 314,000 345 endorsement signatures met the Referendum Act regulations, and the Commission says that 182,848 endorsements were disqualified, and that includes 77,194 that were likely the result of forgery, and another 11,849 signatures of, well, people that were no longer with us. Now, the KMT Taijong candidate and lawmaker is claiming that the Commission has inflated the number of signatures belonging to dead people and possibly even added more simply in order to cause controversy about the referendum question. So, Ross, we did talk about many months ago when these referendums were being put out there that there could be a problem due to the large number of referendums being submitted to the Central Election Committee for verification. This is a a signal of the challenges to come for the Central Election Commission, as well as the people who are supporting the referendums, or I should say the people promoting them, and ultimately the voters. So the, the topics, the questions are somewhat confusing for for the public. And we see even the process now is, is also having some challenges. There, there's an important issue here, though, which is whether the people promoting this specific referendum are actually the ones behind uh, any shenanigans, fraud, etc. Uh, we have to keep in mind that very often uh, an organization that's promoting something like this will have to hire people to canvas, uh, people to stand on the street, collect signatures. People stand there with a billboard asking people to uh, give their ID, sign their name, etc. And sometimes these people get bonuses for the number of signatures that they bring in. So the, at the grassroots level, the people doing this work very often are incentivized to cheat. Donovan, of course, Lou Shouyen, she's running for office in your neck of the woods. Uh, yeah, so I'm really quite curious to see how this plays out because she was, of course, the one who proposed the, uh, proposed the referendum, which is to, uh, by the way, to reduce... Um, the out, the output from thermal power plants by one percent annually. Um, 
Now, she has been using this as a big part of her trying to give herself credibility going into the mayoral election this year, uh, and she's been campaigning primarily uh, on the issue of pollution. Now, uh, the pollution actually is not something that, is, that it had the, the mayor actually has much control over, so she went ahead with this referendum to kind of give herself credibility on the issue. Now, she's also campaigning... Um, on uh, not allowing uh, Thai power to send uh, about three to four percent of the uh, Thai uh, the Thai Taichung power plants output to the north, uh, and a variety of other things that really the mayor doesn't have any control over, and the central government will probably overrule her on that. Now, as far as uh, the, um, the, uh, the 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 allegedly uh, fraudulent. Uh, votes. What I thought was interesting is that the highest numbers listed all came from areas outside of Taichung. Now, that may reflect the coverage, uh, but it appears that here locally in Taichung, uh, there was a lot less of a problem from the information that I've got, uh, which suggests that there was a little bit more care taken here in her neck of the woods, uh, where, of course, you know, it's her stomping grounds and her referendum. Uh, now the and of course the big question is is that now they by the way the CEC did uh, you didn't mention this in the intro did uh, allow the referendum to go forward in spite of uh, the the allegations of fraud because the number of genuine or what they deemed to be genuine uh, signatures did pass the minimum so uh, so really what's going to come what's going to come down to is if they decide to press charges it's going to, is it going to be against the organizer of the whole thing which of course would be the mayoral candidate here in Taichung, Lu Xiaoyan, or are they going to be going after smaller operatives uh, for either within the KMT or those, as um, Ross noted, were hired by the, by the organizers to canvas? Of course, with this large number of referendums this year, Ross, this was always predictable that something like this was going to happen. That's right. And, and as we were discussing a few minutes ago, it, it leads to confusion, confusion at the Central Election Commission. Confusion for the promoters of the various referenda, uh, confusion for the voters, and something that uh, hasn't really been explored in depth, I think, is how does the central government and uh, the president, the premier, the ministers, uh, there's a very, very talented uh, minister of the uh, of the Environmental Protection Administration, uh, Li Yuan. Uh, what's their view on, on a referendum like this, or, or more broadly, all the referendums, but obviously when it comes to something related to air quality, uh, it's something within the purview or the expertise of the environmental minister. We're really getting to the point where the, the central government leadership uh, needs to start taking a, a public position. And I, I would hope that to the extent the government feels that some of these referenda are poorly designed or uh, not in the interests of good public policy, that the government will will take a firm view, because that, that would be very helpful to voters. It, it's not productive to pass a referendum question that cannot be implemented, whether uh, pra- for practical reasons or, or legal reasons, it conflicts with other laws. Uh, so let's hope that in the coming weeks, and we're running out of time. Uh, but let's hope that in, in the coming six to seven weeks that we'll, we'll get some really clear guidance. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And hopefully it could be portrayed in a way that this is not about we're against a referendum simply because it was proposed by somebody from the KMT. But more along the lines of we're against this referendum because it's bad public policy if it passes. And here's why. And, and it's it's really, again, it's, it's up to the president or, or her team, uh, the premier and his ministers to – 
start making that case to the public. And I think that would be very helpful. I think they get Donovan. That goes. Ross had a good point there. I mean, recently there was one of the local newspapers had a headline that basically screamed, you know, there's there's a referendum opposing gay marriage, a referendum for gay marriage. What happens if they both pass? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the, uh, however, I think it's unlikely that because that would require people to vote positively on both of those referendum. Uh, you know, the, the, that I find kind of unlikely. I'm sure that there's a tiny percent of the population that will do that, but I, I don't think we're going to see that, that those numbers that would, uh, that you'd see both of them pass. I think Ross brings up some good points there about the government will need, you know, should talk about the practicality or how, you know, how likely or possible it is to implement some of these things. But the fact of the matter is in the current environment, uh, if the government comes out and says anything for or against, people are just going to assume it's partisan. But that's that's what leadership is about, right? The president was elected to show leadership. The premier has changed his cabinet not very long ago, and, and that was in the interest of showing uh, better better leadership, better execution of public policy. A- again, it, it, part of it is how they portray it. And they say it's, it's not a partisan issue, but we're explaining why this is a bad idea. And, and the marriage equality example is, is perfect for this discussion because we know that the president and her leadership team have uh, historically been supportive, but once they were elected, they weren't as supportive. And this is the, exactly the kind of situation where it, it, it's only for the public benefit if they would take a, a position and say, we support this. We think the other one is bad and please don't vote yes for both because that'll really screw things up i mean you think donovan do you think possibly if this if this the referendums being held in tandem with the elections turn into a bit of a mess as in like turn people just don't vote for these referendums in future do you think there could be less referendums and our government could say hang on a minute let's let's, let's hold our horses on the number of referendums we actually have well, yeah, I mean, it really depends on how many people actually do vote on the referendums. Um, you know, if, they, if a lot of people vote on them and, uh, you know, at least one or more are successful, um, I think you'll see people continuing to use this, uh, use this mechanism. They, they uh, had before on the recalls, they came pretty close. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there has been some signs of potential success, and as long as people think that there, there is a decent chance of success, they will continue to support them. Now, as far as the government uh, limiting the number of them or stepping in, obviously they'd have to go to the legislature with that with proposals on how to modify the laws to make that happen. Right, moving on, and Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jur this week, well, he took legal action against an American writer who claimed that the mayor was involved in live organ harvesting in China. Now, Ethan Gutman told reporters in Taipei that Kerr acted as a broker for rich Taiwanese people who were seeking to receive organ transplants in China. Gutman also claimed that Kerr created incentives for Chinese doctors to harvest live organs and that he was aware that many of those organs came from Falun Gong members. Now, Kerr filed a defamation lawsuit against Gutman at the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office, and the mayor says that he was forced to take legal action against the American writer because he failed to issue an apology for his remarks, and the mayor also says that he believes Gutman is acting as a political pawn in the run-up to next month's local government elections. Now, Kerr has faced similar allegations in the past, but as in this time, he's denied them. And, according to the mayor, the fresh allegations, though, 
and now harm the reputation of Taiwan's transplant and intensive care sectors. So, Ross, I mean, there's been questions about Kerr and China organ harvesting in the past, but of course the big question is here, who paid for Mr Gutman's trip to Taiwan and didn't anyone think to realise that it, the timing was maybe a bit off? I think the key thing here is the public, is the voters in Taipei City are going to make their own conclusions. They're not going to be manipulated by uh, a foreigner making uh, negative comments about America's activities as a doctor many years ago. They're not – the public, the voters, they're, they're not going to be persuaded by the actions of a publishing house which appears to have a, a political bias against the mayor, which is fine. People are entitled not to like the mayor. Uh, but when you publish a book criticizing the mayor and, and the publishing house has a clear bias uh, based on the personalities who are the leadership of the public publishing house, the public sees, sees it for what it is. And the same thing with the timing. America has been in office uh, almost four years. There was plenty of time to investigate this or make an issue of this uh, over the past uh, three years and, and nine months, ten months. And it was, and more importantly, this was uh, discussed four years ago during the campaign. And back then, the public saw it for what it is that um, America might have been. Uh, on the periphery of uh, people who are up to no good in China, but he was involved in, in, in medical tourism, uh, if you want to call it that. That's not a secret. And, but uh, there was no evidence that he had violated uh, any laws or medical ethics. And since nothing's ever kept a secret here in Taiwan, if he has or had um, committed legal or medical ethical violations, there would be more convincing evidence in, in, in the public sphere right now. Um, yeah, the, here's a, uh, there's a few things I find really odd about all of this. Um, the, um, and, and I'm really curious to see how this plays out in terms of motivations. Um, four years ago, uh, during the last election cycle, uh, Gutman actually came out and specifically stated that no, Ke was not involved in trafficking, and actually praised Ke for his help in help, getting in, helping to get information. Um, and so he he was actually supportive of Ke uh, last time around, and was very very clear about that. So all of a sudden, this time, coinciding with another election coinciding with a Chinese translation, which, according to some reports, uh, changes some of the content of the original English. Um, and uh, then Gutman comes out here and all of a sudden changes his tune uh, from four years ago, bringing up these allegations again, uh, which he himself denied four years ago. So this is kind of a, a bizarre scenario. So the question is either, was, is there some kind of political interference is a possibility, possibly with the local publisher of it, uh, uh, of this. That, that that's definitely a possibility. Another possibility is there's purely commercial interest. In other words, the publisher just simply wants to amp up sales, and this is the way to do it. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it's one, the other, or both at this point. But I think that there, it really strongly feels to me like there is some kind of ulterior motivation, considering the timing and the flip flopping on uh, <clears throat> uh, by Gutman. Well, given how, how uh, the mayor is doing in the polls, and he's doing quite well, and his two opponents are not doing well at all, yeah, as for Donovan's point about amping up sales, who's going to buy this book? Again, the, the public sees it for what it is, given the change in, in message from Gutman, the possible discrepancies in, in the Chinese version uh, versus the English version. 
and the, the timing, and that this was discussed at, at length four years ago. And there, if there's no new evidence to to clearly indicate some some kind of legal or medical ethics violation by Dr. Co, which or America, which there does not appear to be, then the the public is going to move on. Uh, one one thing that is clear about America and his interactions with the voters is. Uh, sometimes he says things that are, are uh, a bit direct. Uh, sometimes people criticize some uh, policy of the city government. But these things seem to roll off of him pretty quickly, and, and he just moves on to the next issue. And that's why the voters like him, and he's probably going to win re-election quite easily. Yeah, I agree with Ross on all of that. I think uh, I, I think this is going to roll off Kuh's uh, back. I think it's not going to influence very many voters at all. Right, Ross, as a lawyer, where do you see this lawsuit going? Uh, it'll probably be in the well. If they're seeking criminal charges, which in Taiwan you could have criminal defamation, uh, the prosecutor will investigate. Uh, possible, but unlikely, they would restrict Gutman from exiting Taiwan uh, for this you know, nonviolent crime. Uh, Gutman may or may not show up to defend himself if this does go to trial. If he doesn't show up, he might be found guilty. He'll just never come back to Taiwan. Uh, but this will probably be in the courts. For a while, but again, largely ignored by the public. It's it, 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 by next week. We're, we're unless there's new evidence, we're probably not going to be talking about this anymore. We'll be talking about some other aspect of, of city governance that might be in dispute in, in the weeks leading up to the election. We hope. <laughs> Maybe, yes. Anyway, and we'll move on to APEC. And this week, Morris Jung, the founder, of course, of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, was announced that he'll be serving as Taiwan's representative to this year's APEC Leaders Summit, which take place next month in Papua New Guinea. Now, speaking to reporters after President Tsai Ing-wen announced that he was going to lead the delegation there, Jung said that his mission to APEC in Papua New Guinea is to address how small economies can deal with the challenges of emerging economic nationalism. As he said, that poses a growing challenge to small economies such as Taiwan. And according to Jung, he'll take the advantage of going to the 21-member intergovernmental forum to exchange views with world leaders on how to address those challenges. Now, as for the president, well, she said she appointed Jung as the APEC representative because he's held in high esteem in the international business community and is also the best candidate to engage in dialogue on economic issues with world leaders. Now, it'll be the second time that Jung will have acted the President's representative at the APEC Leaders' Summit because he last filled that role in 2006 when he represented Chen Shui-bian in Hanoi. Of course, People First Party Chairman James Sung had represented Taiwan at the last two previous APEC Leaders' Summits. So, Ross, Morris Jung going to APEC, good or bad? It would be a great idea if he was still running TSMC. And I don't say that as, as a criticism. Uh, in fact, uh, on, on your program, uh, when Mr. John retired earlier this year, I, I, I identified that as, as the biggest business story of the first half of this year in Taiwan because of his importance and the respect he has and, and the industry that he helped create. Uh, but he is no longer in industry. And, and I think that's that's a bit of a detriment to uh, the authority of sort of the, the moral authority or the business knowledge authority that he, 
he could give to the other leaders. Uh, and keeping in mind that the most important leader, uh, the president of the United States, I hope your audience will, will grant me that, uh, will not be, or is, is, as of now, it looks like he will not be attending the APAC, which means this year's APAC is probably not going to have the the value that past APEC leadership meetings have had. Uh, plus, it's in a remote location, which means there might be less press coverage. Um, and the general trade dispute atmosphere also means that nobody would expect uh, to accomplish much at APEC. Keeping in mind that APEC is, is meant to be a forum to discuss business facilitation issues. And that was inherently the problem with sending James Song to you the last two years, because he does not have a background in these issues. So when, when the leaders get together at APEC, they're not supposed to be talking about sovereignty disputes in the South China Sea or cross-strait relations. But everyone knew that James Song was selected so he could pass some message or ask Xi Jinping to be a bit nicer to Taiwan. And of course, it didn't work, <laughs> given the behavior of China. So we see that sending James Song to you was really not effective. Um, so sending Morris Zhang, uh, again, a man uh, that has enormous respect in the business community. However, n- not being the head of uh, the company now and, and being in retirement, um, that that will probably be to his detriment in interacting with the other leaders. Um, I both agree and disagree with Ross here on this one. Um, uh, for, for the assessment here of James Sung being a mistake uh, and a terrible choice. I completely agree. I think Ross nailed it there. Uh, I disagree that um, uh, with Morris Chang being requ- retired is much of an issue here. Um, the, his retirement was fairly recent, so the, the amount that he's not going to know is, is on such a granular level at this point that it's irrelevant to the level of talks they're going to be having. Um, I think it'll be years yet before his knowledge starts to become less valuable. Um, now, primarily, they're going to be talking about uh, political issues, um, both internally in their countries and then uh, as related with trade uh, internationally. And I think that this is a, he's a good choice because uh, a lot of countries respect uh, how Taiwan developed. And <clears throat> Morris Chang is obviously in, was a, a prime beneficiary of state policy. Uh, and uh, also helped to drive it in a lot of ways. So I suspect that a lot of um, a lot of uh, foreign leaders may be interested in actually seeking him out to get his advice, uh, both uh, as somebody who helped drive and somebody who <clears throat> who took uh, well advantage of these kinds of policies that these com- uh, these countries are going to be looking at. And also, he, he obviously uh, made as much of his fortune on international trade, and so he's going to have a, a pretty good in-depth analysis of how that works, what is uh, an impediment and what is not uh, to uh, growth of economies uh, in the region. I'm going to have to disagree with Gavin because the, during the limited amount of time that leaders interact in bilateral meetings uh, – uh, it's almost like a photo op or a chance to talk about one very important issue. No, nobody is asking Morris Chong to give him the PowerPoint presentation about private sector uh, government cooperation to build an industry. Uh, it, it's just not going to happen. They're, they're only there for a couple of days. Uh, they, they have to meet 20 other leaders, um, plus all the multilateral meetings and the photo ops, etc. Uh, it, it's really a chance 
to to say to another leader, you know that one problem we have in our bilateral relationship, um, let's fix it. Here's what we're prepared to offer. And he doesn't have that authority um, on, on behalf of the government. And that, again, that was one of the problems was James Song as well. All right, so if somebody says to to Moore Shang, um, you know, we're having trouble uh, exporting. X, Y, Z into Taiwan, can, you know, is your government prepared to fix it? Um, he's going to say, I, I don't know. I'll, thank you. I'll, I'll take that message back to President Tsai. Right. Okay. In that sense, yeah, he, he doesn't have the authority. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are day, multiple days here and there are multiple meetings that go on. I think what Tsai is, is signaling here is that she's sending somebody who's a heavyweight knowledge-wise. And I think some, uh, you know, some international leaders are not going to care. They're there for the photo op, and they're going to go off and do other things. But there are other people who attend this meeting, and some of the leaders uh, may well be interested. And Tsai is creating an, uh, an opportunity for them to learn from, you know, one of the most successful uh, business people of the late 20th century. Right, of course, the other question we have is, what type of jacket will they be given in Port Moresby? Well, uh, following past precedent, it, w- it would normally be the, the national dress of, of the host country. And uh, some of the leaders, to their credit, uh, they don't mind taking that photo. And they, they look very comfortable. And some it, of them don't now, of course, in the past. Some of them don't. You know, the, the ASEAN countries are a little more used to this because they have so many ASEAN meetings over the course of a year where they also will, will wear the national dress of, of, of the host country. And, and some, to be fair, some of the ASEAN leaders frequently appear in public in traditional or national dress as well. They don't always wear Western-style clothing. Uh, for, for some of the uh, leaders from the Western Hemisphere, it sometimes looks, they sometimes look a bit odd wearing these clothes. It, it could be one more reason why President Trump didn't want to go, uh, besides the, the distance and, and the location and uh, the, the aftermath of the midterm elections the, the, that are coming up in the U.S. Uh, but uh, you know, seeing Morris Jong in, in, in the national dress of, of uh, Papua New Guinea is probably going to get a lot of media attention here. And uh, they'll be talking about that rather than any substantive achievements because I, I would have very low expectations for any substantive achievements, at least on behalf of Taiwan's economic interaction with the other members of APEC. I think the sole reason that Trump is not going to show up is precisely because he wants to avoid that photo. He knows that uh, Trudeau is going to look better than him. So, you know, he just said, you know, I I can't do it. Okay, well, I'll take your word on that, Donovan. But we have to take a short break now, but we will be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the National Immigration Agency earlier this week revealed that two Chinese nationals have applied for political asylum, and they did so on their arrival on a transit stop at Taoyuan International Airport in late September. Now, no details concerning the identities of the said asylum seekers have been released, and it's been now over a week. Now, authorities are citing privacy protection for that, but officials have said they were found at one of the airport's terminal buildings where they asked for political protection from prosecution in China. And the Mainland Affairs Council says the two men were travelling on valid Chinese passports and made the transit stop en route from Thailand to China. Authorities say they are now fact-checking the asylum seekers' stories and, well, they might release more information in the future or they might not. So, Ross, these mysterious Chinese political asylum seekers... 
two words for them. Good luck, because there, there is no formal mechanism to apply for asylum in Taiwan. As many of the listeners may remember from past discussions on this topic, there's been a proposed asylum law in the legislative UN for several years, which is yet to pass. But even that proposed law specifically excludes people from China. Uh, so it's very much at the discretion of Immigration Agency, Mainland Affairs Council, and ultimately the president. Um, so if if the president thinks it's in the interest of Taiwan to grant asylum, um, she could basically issue an order to the uh, other agencies to let these uh, asylum seekers remain in Taiwan. There is precedent for that. Uh, it's happened under uh, Mind Joe, for example. It was, um, it was public, but the, the government didn't make a big to-do about it either. They didn't put these people in front of a, a press conference. Uh, uh, but but it, it's really up to, to the administrative uh, discretion of the authorities because there there is no formal process. We have to keep in mind as well that last year, 2017, there was a dissident from China named uh, Zhang Xiangzhong who applied for asylum here. He tried to get asylum and uh, very quickly and quietly, he was sent along his way back to China, uh, although the timing, unfortunately for him, coincided with the detention in China of a Taiwanese national, Mr. Li. Um, and there was hope at the time that if China, uh, if Taiwan didn't grant asylum to Jiang Xiangzhong, that China might be more inclined to release Li, and, and it didn't happen that way. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't know anything about these two. They've released no information. There's no asylum law, and yeah, that, that's the way the government's always dealt with it. Is they want, and I have a sneaking suspicion the government doesn't want an asylum law because right now they can kind of deal with it as and how they see fit. Um, and so I, I suspect that an asylum law is going to stay dead in the water until there's international pressure for it. But again, I mean, even if this asylum law passed, it, it specifically excludes yeah. people oh, from yeah. China. So <laughs> you know, I don't think it's going to pass. So, <laughs> uh, so the, the key issue here is how, how does the government want to treat people from from China now? Uh, there's a number of ways to look at this. One is sort of basic decency, and most uh, maturing or mature democracies do offer asylum to people who are legitimately seeking it, at least there's a process to apply for it. On the other hand, do we want Taiwan to become known for welcoming dissidents from China, and would that inflame tensions further with uh, China? There might be some very good strategic reasons for Taiwan to start welcoming dissidents from China, but clearly uh, the government has not decided to go down that path yet. Well, they already have. I mean, obviously, Wang Dan and uh, Wor Kaishi. That, that's, that, sorry, that's um, that's two over 15-plus yeah, years. They, it's, they have done this in the past. Uh, is, yeah, know, but, but, but I mean, it's, it's not... Right now they have the... It's not know, a strategic policy, though, to, to do that. To apply it, to, you know, to, 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 to do whatever they feel like is appropriate politically at the time. I mean, why don't you think lawmakers will pass this asylum bill then, Ross? Uh, well... There's some legitimate concerns about too many people coming here to apply for asylum, as any any country would have those concerns where they don't currently have a law or they feel that the law has been abused. And frankly, we see that around the world right now, that, that people feel their asylum laws are being abused because economic, economic migrants will enter and claim asylum, and sometimes it's uh, not legitimate. Right? They, they are economic migrants. They are not people with legitimate fear of persecution. Uh, so that. that that's probably one reason. Another is, frankly, higher priorities. It's just not a priority for the legislative UN, for the government, and, and the public is not demanding that the legislative UN prioritize this. Of course, it's a 
issue of interest to human rights organizations, and they've been chasing the legislative yen to pass this for a number of years. But uh, given that, uh, generally speaking, there, there aren't many other stakeholders seeking the passage of this law, so nothing has happened. Yeah, no, I don't think it's going to pass yet for the same reasons. Uh, and also, like as I pointed out earlier, I think the government likes having its own leeway and its own ability to, to choose and pick and choose how to respond depending on current political uh, circumstances. Right, and we'll move on from political asylum to, well, I don't know how to describe this, um, an orgy. I'm just going to call it an orgy. It's out there. I said orgy. There we go. Because 28 people have been arrested in Taipei, well, for what police are calling a sex party. Orgy, sex party, same thing, really. Now, the arrests occurred at the Wego Boutique Hotel in the city's Darjeur district, where I hope they washed the sheets. And police say they obtained a search warrant for the hotel room with the sheets that were maybe need washing a bit more than the other sheets because they monitored information posted online about the said sex party. Now, police said they found nine women and 19 men in the hotel room and authorities said the men paid 5,000 NT each to attend the party while the women, well, they got in for free. Now, officers said they found 28,000 NT in cash in the hotel room along with food, alcohol, lubricants and some 300 condoms. And police say the two organisers held three separate parties on Sunday of last week, with each one lasting three hours. Now, the three alleged organisers are facing charges of violating the Act on Offences Against Sexual Morality, while the other party-goers, those that didn't organise it but just went along for the fun, are facing fines of violating Social Order Maintenance Acts. Now, Ross, there we go. Obviously, my my takeaway from was from this that they, they made people pay for it, ergo it could be seen as prostitution but apparently this, these violating of the laws doesn't cover prostitution. It covers other things. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be a, a strong prostitution case because you could say the money went for, for the... Lubricants! Yeah, I was going to say the materials that were on site at the event. <laughs> um, it, it's more like what we would call in Western countries a disorderly conduct kind of criminal charge, um, making a, a, a nuisance um, in, in a public place. And, and this is generally considered... A, a public place, even though it's it's a hotel room, uh, so we can't expect the police to do nothing in, for when they're confronted with the situation. It was, as you mentioned, it was publicly announced via the line messaging platform. Uh, the police knew exactly when and where they were. It's it's a good. KPI for the local police who arrested them, right? They could say we, we, we arrested um, these people who were committing you know, these kinds of act or engaging in these kinds of activities in, in a public place. Um, so, uh, I don't expect there to be much public criticism uh, of the fact that the police and, and the prosecutors decided that this was a case worth pursuing. Um, but it will be interesting to see what kind of defenses the defendants put on once they're in court. I, now, I, I'm glad that uh, Ross has shared some important advice here for the listening audience. If you're going to hold an orgy or a sex party, do not do it in a hotel. Do it in your private home, I think is the message here. Um, now, there's a couple of odd things I found about this uh, arrest. <clears throat> Obviously, the, um, the there's 19 men and 300 condoms. Uh, do the math on that. Um, the the other thing is that apparently actually the girls could get paid uh, three thousand under certain circumstances. Um, the other is that the, the raid occurred at two in the afternoon on a Sunday. 
So, it, you know, it, uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, and now also that this was organized by uh, a 34-year-old stockbroker is what he was described as. And a this was uh, his 20-year-old uh, girlfriend's birthday, and this is how they celebrated it. Well, it's, un- it's unfortunate that um, you know such a young person got involved in a situation like this because this could destroy her her education or career pathway having a, a criminal record for something like this. Um, but we shouldn't be surprised again that the police decided to pursue these uh, this case. And uh, uh, the, the reason why it was Sunday afternoon is, uh, as Gavin indicated, uh, they, they were having several different sessions over the course of the day. So the police par- probably selected the one where they felt there'd be the most people in the room to arrest. Um, and since most of these people are probably working professionals, like the stockbroker who organized it um, during during the weekdays or at night, you know, their weekdays they're working at night, they're probably home with their families or sleeping. So Sunday afternoon was the ideal time to have this event. Right, my question is, though, Ross, could these people in the hotel room, if the hotel didn't complain and they weren't actually causing a disturbance to other hotel guests, could they argue that basically the police walked in on their bedroom? No, no. The, the the law, the sections of the criminal code that define you know these kinds of uh, public nuisance or disturbing the peace crimes are so broad that the prosecutor could basically say whatever uh, descriptions they want to give the judge to justify the criminal charge, and it's very likely the judge is going to agree because the the judge has no choice other than to apply the law, and the prosecutor is going to say the law says this, this is what they were doing, uh, thus uh, please convict them. Uh, it's really unlikely that the district court or the appellate courts would suddenly decide that you have a privacy right, like a constitutional privacy right. That's just not how the court systems tend to operate. Uh, so they're probably just going to apply the law and say, yeah, you're, you're guilty. It, it doesn't matter that you were behind closed door um, in, in a hotel. You, frankly, uh, despite what you guys might think, if this was occurring in, in your private flat cabin um, I, and the police knew about it, I, I think they would still come in and, and arrest everyone and, and put on the same criminal charges. Well, uh, okay, so I guess that advice doesn't work uh, to the listening audience. So I guess they're going to have to figure out some other way to work around it. Or, or just don't do it. <laughs> but do you, think, do you think if it went to a higher court, because obviously it goes to the district court, it goes to the high court, then it could go to the Supreme Court. I mean, if the Supreme Court... Again, the appellate courts are unlikely to, to suddenly decide that you have a constitutional right to, to have an orgy. Um, because that, that's basically how the question will be presented to them. And, and I don't think they're going to be that bold to say that uh, you have a right to do that. Uh, they'll, they'll say, again, that this is just a disturbing the peace, disorderly conduct kind of, kind of criminal charge. It, it's a pretty simple criminal charge, right? I mean, Gavin, if the two of us are you know, have, having a heated argument about Taiwan politics on the street, we could get charged with disorderly conduct as well. Um, so it's, it, it's a pretty flexible tra- charge that the police have brought. Anyway, before we go, the island's convenience stores and the huge profit they're raking in from the sales of coffee made the news this week. Now, here's a bunch of figures for you. As of the end of last year, there were 10,662 convenience stores island-wide. Oh, that's one for every two 
2,211 people. Now, that figure is believed to be the second highest in the world, trailing only South Korea. Now, combined sales of fresh coffee at the island's five convenience store chains, those being 7-Eleven, Family Mart, High Life, OK Mart, and Thai Sugar's TSC Million, rose 17% in 2017 to 16 billion NT. So, Donovan, coffee, it's a huge business at these convenience stores. Why did it take them so long to jump on a bandwagon? Well, I mean, they actually have uh, jumped on the bandwagon in the past. I mean, I I remember 7-Eleven, you know, tried pitching coffee many, many years ago. Uh, But I think in the past it was bad coffee. I think that was a big part of it. Um, But also I think the culture's changed. Um, There's been uh, an increase of interest worldwide in the last couple of decades uh, uh, for better coffee. Obviously, you know, Starbucks and these have sort of uh, risen up. But, of course, uh, you know, the... And they recently started branding it better when they started, you know, this Let's Cafe and these kinds of things. They were branded a little better than previous attempts. So it was kind of jumping on the international bandwagon, uh, better branding. Uh, I think people feel the more need to be caffeinated now. People feel more stressed out and busy, um, you know, constantly with the social media and, you know, the phone going off and, and, and uh, work. Uh, Taiwanese work uh, has one of the highest... Uh, uh, workloads in the world, and you sort of put all these things together, and then throw in the convenience of the convenience stores, uh, and it's pretty easy to see how this model works. Well, I think some some coffee connoisseurs would dispute uh, the taste or, or how to characterize well, it's a lot the taste better than what they used to have, which is basically sort of instant. You know, they'd have it on those those big steel, you know, the the, so the, the steel looking things with a little spigot at the bottom. Now they grind the beans and go through the whole routine. So, yes, but the, know, trick is, the, the trick is the trick is what what kind of beans are they using? And uh, presumably as, coffee, I guess. Yes, but the quality okay. the quality could vary. And, and keeping in mind that uh, it's all about the margins at, at the convenience stores. Uh, so if you're paying, um, you know, say, sixty seven NT for a you know, buy one get the second one half price or whatever specials, and, and to their credit, they do. All, often offer specials like that uh you have to ask yourself what kind of quality beans am i getting for such a cheap price why why are they able to deliver me this cup of coffee for for such a cheap price it it really is not the five-star coffee bean well no of course not um i mean but it's significantly better than what they used to offer um and i think actually for the price i mean it's pretty good, in, in my opinion. I mean, the the you know, my sense is that because they have massive purchasing power, they can get a decent bean uh, at a pretty you know decent beans at a pretty low price, and so they can pass pass on a decent cup of coffee for a pretty good price, and 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 keep a decent margin. That's sort of my take on it. No, they're not you know they're not gourmet best you know coffees you can get, but for the price, I think it's a decent. They're they're pretty they're pretty good for the price. Well, the, it's certainly cheap, uh, but there are better alternatives for good coffee. Uh, one thing we, we do benefit from, at least here in Taipei, is so many uh, gourmet coffee uh, small cafes. Um, I, I try to support those. Uh, they're often operated by uh, individuals. They're not part of big chains, and, and they tend to have better coffee, although it's it's more expensive. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, I say the coffee at the convenience stores, is it's, it's decent without being great, but it's considering the price. It's, it's for, for what you get for the price, it's good.
good. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. Yes, have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.